The following presentation is from the 41st Annual Addiction Treatment Leadership Conference, presented by the National Association of Addiction Treatment Providers, held in Washington, D.C., May 5th through the 7th, 2019. This is General Session 5, Political Leadership in an Addiction Crisis. The speaker, former U.S. Congresswoman Mary Bono. My name is Mark Dunn, and I'm Director of Public Policy for the National Association of Addiction Treatment Providers. It's a real treat for me today to introduce our guest speaker. You know, if you um, looked around and did a poll maybe of who is the most influential person, uh, woman involved in uh, our field, substance use disorder, most people would probably say Betty Ford because she was former first lady and was so open and candid about her issues. But I would argue that right under the first former first lady should be our speaker this afternoon. Former Congresswoman Mary Bono didn't seek notoriety for her work. It was her passion. And uh, you need to know that through the sheer force of her personality, she changed the nature of the discussion in Congress. And that's no easy task, I can tell you. As a leader who is, was respected and is respected by uh, members from both political parties, Mary effectively crusaded against the stigma that is associated with this disease, as well as for some really critically important public policy improvements, such as Parity, the Mental Health Parity and Addiction Equity Act, of which she was a co-sponsor. Her accomplishments uh, for our field during her 15 years in Congress are both numerous and very impressive. She helped create and lead the C Congressional Addiction Treatment and Recovery Caucus. And as you probably heard at noon, that caucus was instrumental in making sure that residential uh, care was included as a 10 essential benefit in the Affordable Care Act. Mary was really the glue that held that caucus together. And uh, sad to say, they're not as effective now as they were when she was in Congress. The true sign of commitment to an issue for congresspersons is what do they do when they actually leave office? Mary continues to be a crusader for our cause and a voice for those who are still suffering. She serves on numerous boards of organizations involved in the field, and she's actually formed her own group to influence substance use disorder public policy. When the history down the road of our field is written years from now, a lot of space should be devoted to the outstanding leadership of our speaker. Please welcome our good friend, former Congresswoman Mary Bono. person he was talking about. Who is <laughs> a lot. Who is she? Um, thank you so much. Mark, can you post all of that on my Facebook page, please? <laughs> Verbatim. But I want to thank you all so much for the invitation to be with you today and to share with you my thoughts and, and recollections and to uh, address this very important conference. So as Mark said, I'm a 
former member of Congress, but probably more importantly, I'm a family advocate with an adult child on the journey of recovery and all that that means. I'm also a flaming codependent, which probably made me perfectly suited to be a member of Congress. Um, so, the, you know, before I ran for Congress, excuse me, my allergies are getting me. I have to drink a little water while I speak. And my bottle has the worst gurgling sound when I drink, so forgive me. Sorry, I hope you Mike won't pick it up. Um, when I ran for Congress, I was very shy and afraid of public speaking, and somebody gave me some great advice about successful public speaking, and they, they told me that to be successful, that you should stand tall so people can see you, you should speak loudly so they can hear you, and you should sit down quickly so that they will like you. Um, so I can probably deliver okay on those first two things. I can stand tall and, and speak loudly, but I'm not going to be very, very quick today because there's an awful lot to discuss. But I hope you like me anyway, even though I'm not going to sit down quickly. And there's that codependent thing, right? right? But um, So I've been out of Congress for six years, and as Mark said, I've never slowed down for a moment with my efforts to support drug abuse prevention, treatment, and recovery. Among the work I've been doing, I co-convened the Collaborative for Effective Prescription Opioid Policies, uh, or called CPOP. We co-convened that with CADCA, which is Community Anti-Drug Coalitions of America, and Trust for America's Health. We now have over 80 participants, including some of you in this room, and I thank you for your participation. And just this February, I became the chairman of the, of the board of a very small nonprofit called Mothers Against Prescription Drug Abuse, lovingly known as MAPTA. And in two weeks from now, I will be sworn in as a commissioner of the congressionally chartered Western Hemisphere Drug Control Policy Commission, and I also serve on the board of CADCA. I also had a five-day um, little foray into USA Gymnastics, and I won't bring that up. Um, <laughs> I did that, and next time I decide to do anything so stupid, and my friends like Mark and Nick Botu don't jump on me and put me in a straitjacket, I will be very disappointed in you. But this work is truly my life's passion. I used to say when I was in Congress that there are issues that you do, and there are issues that you are. I am an adult child and alcoholic, so I've been around these issues, and I may add these amazing, brilliant, talented, great, and sometimes annoying and frustrating people my whole life. I was blessed that I was a daughter of a professor of medicine. My dad was an ENT doc at the LA County USC School of Medicine. Sorry, forgive me again. <laughs> Here we go, slurp. And I'm so glad to know you guys are taping this. <laughs> But uh, so my dad was a professor of medicine, I was saying, and he taught me about my mother that uh, alcoholism and addiction are diseases and not a moral failing. He was way ahead of his time. Later in life, that very lesson paid off hugely for me when my own son became addicted to Oxycontin in high school. He felt he could come to me and to my father and ask for help. My son's father had passed by then. It is quite possible that Sonny's passing was an adverse childhood experience that played a part in my son's desire to self-medicate. And then there is that troublesome addiction gene. We've been through, as a family, multiple, um, what do we call them? I guess I can call them extended stays with a few of you at your facilities. And that during those extended stays, I learned a lot about my family, about myself, frighteningly. And I'd like to <laughs> recount a joke that I think I learned at the Betty Ford Center. Um, that they said, do you know how to tell if somebody with an active addiction is lying? His lips are moving. I thought to myself, I am in Congress. I am so used to that. Um, so, but having said that, I want to take this chance to say that we've come a long way from using language like addict or junkie. 
in the decades of labeling people with a substance use disorder as lesser than, so the moral failing is hopefully coming to an end. <laughs> I swear it's water. <laughs> so you can see why I've decided to try to be both a warrior against prescription drug abuse and diversion and a huge advocate for anyone in recovery and those of you who help to get people there. But so before warned, I want to let you know that I'm going to take questions after my remarks, so feel free to come up with your questions uh, or any ideas you'd like to share with me. So I'd like to thank NATAP for their hard work, and I applaud them for the immensely important role they play in saving the lives of our loved ones and ourselves. There's no question that NATAP has evolved tremendously over the past 10 years alone, but when you look back at the 41 years since its formation, NATAP has led the way with the evolution of addiction treatment from a mostly discrete industry into a robust professional healthcare discipline in its own right. My deepest appreciation goes out to all of you who are involved in leading the necessary discussion regarding ethics and treatment. The recent expansion of efforts and funding in this area have done a lot to increase access to treatment, but as was all too obvious, and we all too well know, shady characters and bad actors just, fled into the, just flooded into this field, and the very thought of that is heinous. There's no disputing how difficult it is to treat a patient with a substance use disorder. There's no magic formula or a one-size-fits-all treatment solution. God, don't we wish that there were. But it is a human toll that is paid when fraud and deception take hold in the areas of treatment and recovery. I'd like to take this opportunity to thank my colleagues at the Federal Trade Commission and the Department of Justice who have been focusing on this problem. They are stepping up in a big way. Which leads me to the topic of my remarks this afternoon, political leadership in an addiction crisis. Ordinarily, when you think of a crisis, you hope that the best and the brightest and the very best trained people step up to lead. You also realize that oftentimes there are no playbooks on how to navigate through a crisis. Leadership usually comes from a set of values and judgment calls that take courage, the courage to stare down special interests that have played a large role in the addiction epidemic. Today, I'm happy to say that leadership and bipartisanship are alive and well when it comes to addiction policy. I'm also happy to say we have a strong focus on the problems and an equally strong desire to find and implement solutions. Uh, huh. It's actually one of the very, very few bright spots out of an increasingly dysfunctional and hostile political environment. The majority of members of Congress on both sides of the aisle are engaged with legislation that touches on addiction prevention, treatment, and recovery. But just a quick look at some numbers. If you go to the website congress.gov and do a search on the words addiction treatment, you will find that in the 115th Congress, which was from 2017 through 2018, there were 66 bills introduced in the House and the Senate that addressed some portion of the prevention and treatment continuum. Compare that to 2007, when there were only six bills introduced, from 66 to six. If you search on the words opioid treatment, you will see 40 bills that were introduced in the 115th Congress and a whopping zero back in 2007. If you search on addiction prevention, there were 13 bills introduced in the 115th Congress and there were no bills at all between the years of 2003 and 2017, at least that come up in that search on congress.gov. So although these numbers are not a scientific analysis about the total activity of the U.S. Congress, it does paint a pretty good snapshot about the uptick in legislative responses to the addiction epidemic. Many of Congress get excuse me, members of Congress get engaged and they introduce bills. Many go nowhere and some either are passed as standalone bills or they get wrapped up into larger bills. 
Next year, we're going to get this conference sponsored by Evian. So when you look at the voting history in both the House and the Senate, you will see clearly that addiction prevention treatment and recovery policies have become very bipartisan. We've come a long way since the parity days. The Comprehensive Addiction and Recovery Act, also known as CARA, passed with a vote of 407 yeas to five nays in the House and with a vote of 92 to two in the Senate. As for the Support Act, or H.R. 6, in the last session of Congress, it passed in the House with a vote of 396 yeas and 14 nays. It passed the Senate with a vote of 98 to 1. That bill was the largest ever legislative effort to combat a single drug crisis in our nation's history. And those vote totals are startling. That is an overwhelmingly um, just positive response. You don't see those votes very often at all. And 10 years ago, I've said during parity, or 15 years ago, you probably would have seen 50-50, 60-40, but nothing like 98 to 1. So very recently, the president signed the bipartisan criminal justice reform bill into law. That bill was many years in the making. It truly brought both sides together from long entrenched opposing corners. Seriously, like two fighters in a ring. They were so far apart. But this was another terrific victory in Washington and a very good example of Congress at its best. Unfortunately, a rarity these days. So when you look at these vote totals and the comprehensive nature of these bills, the amount of hard work and bipartisanship that it took to get this legislation signed into law cannot be understated. Members were negotiating, compromising, and discussing the guts of the bill at length. It is also extremely important to recognize the amount of help, guidance, prodding, and pushing from the outside advocacy community that went into these successes. That outside world includes regular constituents, advocates, trade associations, nonprofits, stakeholders, and yep, paid lobbyists. If you look at the history of leadership in the Congress by looking at the various caucus that have existed, you need to start back with the great work that my former colleagues Jim Ramstad and Patrick Kennedy did with the Addiction Treatment and Recovery Caucus, as Mark said. They were pioneers in that space. And I still chuckle to myself when I remember asking them if I could join. And Jim looked at me and sort of laughed. He said, Mary, you're not in recovery. And I'd say, well, I'm a codependent, and that certainly qualifies me to join this caucus. But it was the first time an outsider wanted to come in and be a part of that caucus. So I think that that was historical and a pivotal moment in the Congress for beginning to accept uh, the work that was later done. But because, perhaps after that, um, I think we, we, we founded a different caucus, the Prescription Drug Abuse Caucus. I founded that with Congressman Hal Rogers of Kentucky. Hal had been witnessing the overdose deaths early on since he represents part of Appalachia. When I first heard about the Sackler family's Oxycontin, it was called Hillbilly Heroin, and it seemed a million miles away, away from my own congressional district, and certainly even farther than that away from my own home. We created the caucus to join forces in battling what was to us a clear and pe present danger. At first, we were just two of us in the caucus, but our numbers grew as the epidemic spread. Soon we had colleagues joining us in Florida, Massachusetts, and New York. Some of my favorite memories about my 15 years in Congress are of the bipartisan work we did through this caucus that included taking several agency heads and industry associations to task for their lack of engagement with the burgeoning opioid epidemic. We engaged with, or, or tussled with, as the case often was, a bunch of acronyms, but the FDA, SAMHSA, ONDCP, DEA, NIDA, CDC, NIH, NIAAA, Pharma, AMA, and the list goes on and on and on. If you're interested in a chronicle of congressional action addressing the opioid epidemic, please pick up, up the book American Overdose by Chris McGreal. 
He did an excellent job exposing some of the root causes and the depth of the corruption that went overlooked by myriad government agencies that had a responsibility to actually control controlled substances. To quote, to, uh, to quote Chris, he wrote, and I quote, the FDA wasn't the only one to drop the ball. A clutch of federal agencies with long names have responsibility for combating drug addiction and overdoses. Any of them, SAMHSA, NIDA, and NODCP could have taken the lead if they had been interested enough, end quote. The Congress was not without blame for ignoring the addiction epidemic. Although I fought hard to hold hearings into the root causes and systemic failures we were witnessing, during my service, the health subcommittee refused to hold any hearings, so I had to hold them in my own committee, which I chaired, which was the Commerce, Manufacturing, and Trade Subcommittee, hardly a place for addiction policy to be debated, but that's where we had to do it. So just this past year, my former ranking member, uh, G.K. Butterfield of North Carolina, was in a hearing, and he mentioned in that hearing that at the time of my hearings back in 2011 and 12, he felt that I was overstating the problem of the opioid epidemic, and he wished he had not, not seen it that way. So my favorite line I used back then, and I do to this day, is that when you look at the statistics, the CDC charts, that if the same number of dolphins died each day and washed up on our shores, as the number of our fellow Americans who were dying from overdoses, there would be complete and utter outrage. Where was the outrage? Thank you. Where was the outrage for the human lives lost, the sons and the daughters, the brothers and the sisters, the mothers and the fathers? Why was the political response so late and so feeble? It's, response, it's reasonable to ask that if the very agencies charged with protecting public health were unable to identify this epidemic while it was killing more and more of our neighbors every day, why should we have any faith in them now? So I guess there are many reasons why there was a lack of outrage, I suppose. Those of us who were trying to raise the awareness of the overdose deaths back home in our districts were met with resistance every step of the way. There were external pressures which were opposing and much stronger forces. But eventually the awareness began to hit every single member of Congress right in the face as they too began receiving calls from grieving parents begging for action or they were learning that their morgues were overflowing, their so social services struggling to cope with children orphaned or taken into care, and families and communi communities disintegrating right before their eyes. Truth be told, every time I meet a parent who loses a child nowadays, I wonder how many lives we could have saved, saved if we would have nipped the opioid epidemic in the bud. We certainly lost a decade. The years between the unequivocal warning signs from those grappling with the impact of the mass prescribing of opioids and the eventual federal reaction in which the epidemic could have been contained and hundreds of thousands of lives saved. I believe it was all preventable. We, the congressional advocates, finally felt some great relief when Dr. Tom Frieden at the CDC labeled the opioid, opioid epidemic exactly what it was, an epidemic. I will go even further myself and I call it a national crisis and a national nightmare. Congress has held many hearings in all facets of the addiction epidemic. Perhaps most relevant to all of you was a recent hearing where Marv and NATAP testified about how to address fraud in the treatment industry. Word to the wise, Congress is no longer asleep at the switch and I believe they will remain very involved in the rightful oversight capacity that they have. Trust me, you'd rather be invited to testify before Congress with positive outcomes, ideas, solutions and actions instead of being hauled in under subpoena trying to justify deceptive marketing practices or possibly worse.
We've come a long way. Thanks to a lot of you in this room, you've been at this a long time. I think I'm newer than many of you at it. But I was particularly delighted when President Trump spoke at the Rx Abuse and Heroin Summit a couple of weeks ago, and he invited a powerful voice to share the stage with him. And I'd like to quote that young, young speaker. He said, my name is Alex Ellswick, and I'm a person in long-term recovery. The audience burst out in applause. Thousands of people burst out in applause to support Alex and his statement of being in long-term recovery. For me, to see the President of the United States to stand up with Alex and applaud his recovery sent a huge message that should help smash the stigma that we all deal with on a daily basis. This President, and please don't tweet this because this gave me a lot of trouble. I didn't vote for this President. Um, so when I say, when I endorse something he has done, I hope you realize it's not coming from a partisan position, but truly admiration for what he is doing and what he has done. He can be incredibly annoying, but as far as addiction treatment recovery, I've never seen such a focus from an administration that we're seeing from this president, and I'm so glad to see it. So that was, a, and don't tell anybody that I didn't vote for him. <laughs> so that was, <laughs> yeah, I'm it won't be good. Um, <laughs> so that was a quick executive summary of where we've been on the federal level. And now let's turn to where we need to go from here. I've been fortunate in my life to be around a lot of very special people, a lot of pioneers, and a lot of real leaders. To me, leadership and genius mean to, means to work through all of the no's you get, to work through the opposition and the adversity you face, to know that you're on the right track even when there are more voices against you than are for you. Political leadership happens at all levels. It is needed on the federal, the state, and the local level, especially when it comes to addiction policy. And believe it or not, that political leadership also resides within each of you. Tomorrow, many of you will head to Capitol Hill to advocate for some very, very crucial causes, parity and the need to enforce it, NATAP's quality assurance efforts and the need to recognize all substance use disorders when creating public policy. Thank you, Mark Dunn, for that talking point. You might also be asked to talk about your outcomes and the trends you are seeing. Hopefully, they will ask you about what is needed, and they're going to listen to what you have to say. So politicians and their positions generally have two origins, in my opinion. The first is a rigid ideology that someone adheres to. It can be hard to break through those ideologies, and sadly, we might be seeing an uptick in this kind of a politician. The other origin comes from crowdsourcing, debate, compromise, empathy, and reason. Hell, once in a while, even some common sense. And I guess you can tell which one of those two styles I believe is preferable. So although there are certainly ways to bring around an ideological politician, it can obviously be harder. The key is to speak about your issues in their language. But for the second type of politician, your voice and your expertise is the very bedrock of sound policy. Any single politician can only be an expert in a small set of issues. Few come from our arena. They need to benefit from your experience. So please share it with them. Get to know them. Stay in touch with not only your politicians, but their staff. There are quite a few talking points that you can share with them. Become a trusted resource for them. Let them know that you adhere to the high standards set by NATAP and that you are saving lives and families. Don't forget to let them know about the other side, the number of jobs that you might be creating in their districts. Believe it or not, jobs and job creations are always a a very popular currency around politicians, certainly in Washington, D.C. They love to know you are providing good jobs. By the way, I'd like to take this moment of personal privilege to say how extremely proud I was to represent the Betty Ford Center. 
Not only that, President Ford was my campaign chairman from the first moment that I ran for Congress, and after he passed, Betty Ford became my campaign chairwoman. The very thought of the support of those two, the honor and the responsibility that it gave to me, still warms my heart. And I think that the Fords and I, we think we all chose each other very well. But to Nick Motu and the Betty Ford Hazelden crew, you have my eternal gratitude, not only because of the Fords' backing, but for the life-saving work you have done for multiple members of my family. So thank you, Nick and, and Hazelden, Betty Ford. Each of you have something similar, then that is what I had with the Fords. Well, maybe not quite as amazing what I got to have, but please build that same kind of relationship, if you can, with your member of Congress. One very important tool at your disposal as members of NATAP is your PAC. It's hard to explain why your PAC is tremendously important, and I hope they got that through at your lunch. It's really hard to make it sound important without kind of making it sound a little bit sleazy. I know that. It's a PAC. But put that aside. Please just know it's important. It's a great tool for you and your skilled DC representation. The very capable Mark Dunn. But you know, Mark gets to then, in, in all of you, you get to engage in a ton of extra face time and relationship building. It really is a time and a place where policy is debated when you attend fundraisers. After all, Washington DC and politics are, as a whole are all about relationships. And it's best to have them in place before you need them. And the PAC is also a great way for you all to build a force multiplier for your industry. So I want to applaud NATAP for heavily increasing your engagement level on public policy. I know it's been a delicate balance of protecting anonymity from the past and also busting through the stigma associated with this disease. You've all been leaders and you'll continue to be. You know, the stigma is alive and well still in Congress. There are still people who are afraid to talk about this topic or they haven't been exposed to it. I remember showing up at Family Week um, with my son up at the Cirque Lodge one day and running into a colleague of mine, and neither one of us had any idea that the other one was dealing with a child uh, in, in, in treatment. And uh, unfortunately, that, that member and I, he, he never engaged on it. He was the kind who went silent, and it was unfortunate to see that. But there really is tremendous danger in legislating during a crisis. The pendulum can and often swings back too far, or it swings one way or the other. The key to good public policy is to look for what I call the sweet spot, right in the middle. How do we implement policies that won't cause a backlash, especially in an area when Congress has no track record older than five years? The answer is to utilize and promote your outcomes toolkit, build on your quality initiative and your core competencies. Sound science and successful outcomes are the proof that you are on the right path. Don't ever underestimate that countless lives hang in the balance of the work that you are doing. So there's no shortage of lessons to be learned from the past. One is about what happens when commercial interests wield influence over medical policy, a key topic of discussion for this very conference. Our leaders need to reflect on who fell victim and why, not only those who fell victim to the opioid epidemic, but also to the rapid rise in fraudulent treatment scams and schemes. So I have some concerns, a point of personal privilege, I'll share with you my personal concerns and where we're headed if we're not careful. One example is a quick turn to what might look like medication-only treatment. Uh, as lovely as the thought is that we can simply medicate ourselves out of this mess, it's a recipe for disaster. In fact, medication-only treatment would be about as worthless as trying to incarcerate our way out of the epidemic. I'm also concerned that we may be creating a paradigm of treatment that may hurt efforts for recovery for patients on drugs of choice other than opioids. 
And a lot of this can see, be seen by the extensive lobbying that is occurring by drug companies looking to make even larger profits. Drug companies have armies of lobbyists. This may be an area that will overcorrect time and time again when the pendulum continues to swing back and forth. Word to the wise. And then there is the issue of marijuana legalization. If we thought big tobacco was bad, just wait until big marijuana increases its grip on America. If nothing else, our children need to be taught that just because drugs are legal, that does not make them okay or safe. That would be a good use of political leadership. Another good use of political... Thank you. Another good use of political leadership would be for politicians and community leaders to invest big resources into building solid recovery capital. Although the federal government can help with this, it truly is an issue for the local level and even up to all of us as individuals. Communities should be investing in a culture that gives those in recovery a solid backing and the greatest chance for success. And the important role that many nonprofits are playing in addressing all facets of prevention, treatment, recovery is, is real. This is something we're doing with MAPTA, which I spoke about in my opening remarks, my opening words, Mothers Against Prescription Drug Abuse. We're focusing on providing scholarships for students coming out of inpatient rehab in need of vocational training. So far, we're working on a program with College of the Desert in Palm Desert, California, on a program to train students in recovery to go into the solar industry. It's a partnership with the largest solar installer in the area, Renova, who has pledged to also have the student intern within the solar company as they are working on their education and skills as a way to provide more support for the student. To me, this is a great example of investing in recovery capital on the local level. Here in the Washington area, we're working to establish scholarships for students in recovery to attend the Culinary Institute in Northern Virginia Community College. It is our hope to work with the Great American Restaurants, the big chain around here, to create the same partnership with them that we have with Renova. So MAPT is also hoping, hoping to partner with some of you and offer free doTERRA drug disposal pouches for patients entering into rehab who need to dispose of their drug of choice. We hope to create a ceremonial moment, the moment they decide to go into rehab and dispose of their drugs. And we also don't want them flushing those drugs who are wondering if, if MAPTA could give these to you and if you could maybe think of a program that you might use it as a serial moment of transformation and change for somebody entering into rehab. So if you're interested, please re reach out to us at mapta.net and let us know if we can partner on that. And by the way, we do it at no cost to you, and I bet you don't hear that very often. Uh, we would do this and we would donate them to you. But so to close, I want to again thank you and NATAP and MARV in particular for their leadership during this crisis. I know it's been a tough few years. You've done amazing things, and I'm so proud of you and the work that you have done. I stand behind you. I hope to partner with you with all of your work going forward. So my hope for each of, each of you is that you all prosper and continue to save lives and families, and I hope you have a very productive day tomorrow on the Hill. I'm just going to say God bless America and God bless those in recovery and the people that love them and the people that help them, like all of you. So on that note, I'm going to let um, the microphone be passed around. If anybody has questions, thoughts, comments, compliments, those are okay, too. <laughs> Thank you. Sadan? Okay. Thank you very much, Mary. Um, you need to know that... Uh, uh, the, the kind of dedication that she has. Mary got in at 6.30 this morning on a red eye and still showed up today to, to speak to us. So we really appreciate that.
Does anyone have a question? And I'll bring the mic to you. Here we go. Yeah, I just want to add my thanks for, for all the work you've done for us and for coming here today. You mentioned there's going to be about 120 of us that go to the Hill tomorrow to, to talk about our issues. As a former member of Congress that I'm sure had many of these come through your, through your office and talk to you, do you have any suggestions on, on how we can make an impact and how we can walk out of there and they have a message or a thought about us more than just the, the documents that, that you give? Is there any way we can kind of hook them, if you will, and, and get them to buy into our message? That's always a great question, and, and successful advocacy has many pathways. Um, hopefully it's earlier in the day when you get there um, rather than later. They're a little bit more attentive when they're not as tired. But, you know, everybody is different. They receive messages differently. Most, I find that most people benefit when you speak to their heart rather than their head. They need to hear the stories. They need to hear the stories of recovery and transformation and the great work you're doing. Um, but every once in a while, bolstering some statistics um, is very important. And I think leaving statistics behind, I think talking about the outcomes and, and what the work that you're doing on measuring outcomes and, and the positive stuff is important to leave behind too. But for me, I was always the type that if you spoke to me, you got me first through my heart. And if you could connect on that level. And look, this is just one of the most powerful stories in America these days, right? This crisis and the, the story of transformation. So I would go that route. If their eyes are glazing over, try to go the statistics route. And other than that, um, the one thing I will say is really important. Please make sure you get their business cards and get their email addresses and try to stay in touch. Um, you know, when you build that relationship with an office, and it can be a young staffer, it could be the staffer who focuses on these issues. You might not meet with a member of Congress. You may or you may not, depending on what's happening. But if you can build that relationship and be a resource for them, an ongoing resource for them, that's very, very important. Uh, email addresses, if you can collect them, is the best. If you mail something now to Capitol Hill, it takes about three months before it arrives because it has to be irradiated and everything is irradiated in Ohio. So send everything by email or by fax if you can. But try for your, go for the heart. That's my advice. Other questions? Jay. So um, I think one of the greatest things that happened was the Mental Health Parity Act, um, strangely passing in TARP, and that's a great story. I sat next to Patrick Kennedy on a plane one time, and he told me about that, so that was a treat. Um, but we all know that the enforcement of parity is not where it needs to be, and I, I believe the way the legislation had left that to state insurance commissioners. What do you think... Uh, for us, as we tell them more work needs to be done on parity, what's the best message or what should we be asking for? Should it be enforced at the federal level or what other thoughts do you have? Absolutely at the federal level. And you need to tell them it's not being enforced. You need to tell them families are not getting relief from it, that it's entitled only. And I would make that case and I would make it everywhere that you possibly can. And as a parent who's been through this many times, I've never, I personally have never witnessed anything happen positive from parity. It's somehow there's always a loophole and a crack. And when I think about other parents who don't have the opportunities, you know, or, or and they have nowhere to turn. So I would tell them it's not working and we, you need to enforce it. It would work if it were enforced. You need to tell them that. If it were enforced, it would work and it would save lives. And look, you know, that doesn't just go for our issue of addiction. That goes for the suicide rates. I mean, there's so much that's underneath that umbrella. 
and we need to tell them that it needs to be enforced. So I would put that, I would honestly suggest you do that as number one on your, on your topics of discussion tomorrow. And local level, say it everywhere. Call your insurance companies. <laughs> it needs to be enforced. Great, good points. Another question? Yes. Thank you for coming. Um, you mentioned recovery capital towards the end. Can you just talk a little bit more about what you mean with that and what we could do as organizations? Sure. It's actually kind of funny because um, when I was talking to Marv and Mark about this speech a couple weeks ago and saying what was on my mind and what I wanted to share with you, they gave me some of these some of these you know terms of art, and I hadn't I didn't even know recovery capital was actually a term. I just spew out what comes from my heart. Um, and luckily, sometimes it has a definition. But it isn't, look, if, if when I think, my focus has been on the adolescent community, most of all. That's where I was impacted, and those are the people I've been around the most, other than my, you know, my mom. Um, but when, when a kid comes out of rehab, first of all, the first thing a parent thinks, if you're not used to this world, I know you know all, all this, you think that you're going to send your kid off to 30 days at Betty Ford, and he's, they're going to come back perfect and fixed. And life is good, isn't it great? And the truth is that it's just the beginning. And that if they don't get out from any of your facilities, and if they don't get out and have the runway before them that is paid for them with support, then there's no chance for success. If you take a child out of rehab and he's in college and you plunk him right back into the same college dorm with his partying friends, that's not a chance for success. How do we put him into a sober dorm? How do we build sober dorms, sober schools? How do we get vocational training for kids who need a life after they're out of rehab? You know, if there's no hope, there's no chance for success. So for me, it's anything that we can do to build that support around them. Not, look, again, as the big codependent that I am, whichever is a C, whichever way it goes, um, I'm not trying to enable anything for them. I'm not trying to make their life easier. I'm trying to remove the stigma and to tell them that I am so proud of you and the work that you are doing, and I'm here to play my role in helping you succeed. And truth be told, I have a little bit of selfishness in this. My son thinks it's so cool that I do this work so he never feels that I'm ashamed of him and his disease because I'm so invested in trying to help other people succeed as well. So, yeah, there's a personal benefit for me. He thinks I'm cool. <laughs> um, but, you know, that takes many shapes and forms, you know. And, and um, I don't know that we know all of the answers, but I know we can see them. And I think, what do we need? And I think it's brand new. I think sober dorms, I mean, my goodness, duh. I mean, we should have done that long ago. Um, and that's just one example, I think, of investing in the, in the recovery capital that we're creating an environment that is best suited for their success. So. Thank you. First of all, thank you so much for being here and for your candor and sincerity. It means the world. I, you mentioned adverse childhood experiences, and I wonder what your thoughts were on us bringing that up in our dialogue with the folks on Capitol Hill, because I believe that trauma is underlying addiction. I mean, we all know that. And is it worth it to, to take a stab at bringing that up and some education around it? Yes, I think more and more people are talking about it. And Trust for America's Health did a great report solely on mm -hmm. ACEs and talking about it and how they play a role. I think informing more and more people into this um, okay. can, can be good. But I would think that if it's not necessarily in your talking points for tomorrow, 
um, you might try to stick to the talking points because you're all going tomorrow with the same voice. Mm -hmm. And to try to focus energy on those certain issues all at once, I think is important. I think ACEs are kind of a new topic for a lot of people. Um, I think there's going to be some confusion from a lot of people. But they're going to say, well, adverse childhood experiences can actually make somebody stronger. Yeah. <laughs> right? So they, I don't yet know how they're going to respond to it. So I would think that having a real robust internal conversation first about how to present it um, in, a, in a way that we know what the response is going to be might be a better route to go. But if I can, I'll defer to Mark on that question on whether the timing is right to discuss that since he's the strategist for tomorrow. Thank you. Thank you very much. Um, after the ice cream social, we do have a panel discussion to focus on uh, the Capitol Hill Day, the issues that we're going to talk about. So uh, we'll bring all that up at that time. Thank you. Yes. Hi. Thanks for being here. I enjoyed your talk. Um, what happens to the bags after they're, they're filled with prescription medications? These? Yeah. Awesome. Um, First of all, I'm all in on this product. I joke that the only thing I don't have is a Datura tattoo um, because I really believe in this as a, a good solution to removing unused, unwanted medications out of medicine chests. Mm -hmm. I've actually seen mothers who've lost children. Um, they, on behalf of MAPTA, they've, they've actually gone to, to like health fairs and handed these out, and it's been a sort of a tangible way for them to feel like they're actually contributing to, to a solution as opposed to constantly sharing their story of loss. So this bag actually inside is an activated charcoal um, package. It kind of looks like Tide Pod. Mm -hmm. um, it's actually a patented special charcoal. When you put the drug in and you add warm water in, it dissolves, you know, not instantaneously, but within the hour the pills will dissolve. And then the drugs actually adsorb, not, it doesn't absorb the bead, adsorbs. So the drug is actually then attached to the, yeah. to the carbon molecule. Mm -hmm. So you cannot um, extract it. It's irretrievable. And so then you seal it up and you throw it into the household trash because mm -hmm. the, the drug is then bound onto the charcoal. This can go into the trash heap. And this, this bag also has a microbe inside of it that makes the bag bioavailable. Mm -hmm. So whether it's at the top of the trash heap or the bottom, eventually it will go away in the landfill. We don't call it biodegradable because biodegradable has a, like a 12-month time frame, and this may or may not degrade entirely within one year, but the whole bag will go away because of the mic microbes in it in the landfill. Mm -hmm. So, um, you know, you all saw the, the DEA take back numbers probably from last weekend. They're huge. Again, tons and tons and tons of pills are being discarded and taken back by the DEA, mm -hmm. but every day ought to be a take-back day. Yeah. You know, to say to, to say to a patient, or to say to a patient in rural America, okay, drive four hours to get to your DEA take back day on Saturday from from noon to two. I mean, it's just not plausible. But to hand these out with controlled substances, I mean, I wish they would be co-dispensed with every opioid prescription that was written. That's a good idea. We went to I went to CVS to give them some pills back, and they wouldn't take them. And I asked the pharmacist uh, where I could go, and she said, I don't know. I was surprised. So. You know, CVS. And Walgreens and Rite Aid, they're all installing kiosks, and I applaud them. It's got to be an all of the above approach to getting rid of unwanted unused meds. Um, and, but out of, I think, CVS, out of what, 12,000 stores? I think 1,200 have kiosks. But they're putting more and more in the more often people ask for the opportunity to dispose of drugs. But it's been hard for them. They don't want to take the liability on. You know, it's, it's been a real battle in this town and a lot of work with the DEA on trying to make sure we can do you know, common sense ways of getting rid of unused meds. 
You know, the other part for me is a lot of people talk about mail-back programs. So if controlled substances come to you in the mail from your P PBM, they're, they're, you know, they're tracked. But if you put your meds back in the mail to go back to an incinerator, there won't be any tracking. And to me, thank you, it's a bad idea, it's just ripe for diversion. So to me, this one just makes great sense. There are other technologies similar, but this is, in my opinion, the only one that works. Um, if, for, if, if you have a facility, you can contact us at mapta.net. Right here, Whitney, Whitney, will you stand up? And just, this is my assistant. She's my everything. Uh -huh. Yeah, you can clap for her. <laughs> so we can give you our cards after um, the, and, and reach out to Whitney or to me and through mapta.net. I'm also... <laughs> Yay! You guys are an active bunch. Yeah. <laughs> Whitney.Taylor at mapta.net or Mary.Bono at mapta.net. Um, and I'm on social media too. But if you like the idea, please let us know because it's something new um, that we came up with as, as a way to have help with the transformation. Oh, by the way, so Whitney, well, just really fast, I met Whitney. She was interning for CADCA and I stole her from CADCA. And she works for me both on my consult, I have a consulting firm and we are both heavily involved with MAPTA. She's working on her master's degree in psychology and wants to go into this field. So you can't steal her from me when she gets her degree. Um, thank you for bringing up the Datura bags. Um, within our local community, I'm a vice chair for our coalition for drug-free Lee County in Southwest Florida, and this is something that we do. Um, so if anybody's wanting to spread the word. If you have a local coalition that may be somewhere you want to go um, and to spread the word locally about these bags and the disposal, we've had great success with this. So thank, thank you. you. Yes. I like that. Anybody else want to endorse everything I'm saying? Please stand up and <laughs> take the mic. I'd be happy for that. Any other questions? Oh, We have one more over here. Thank you so much for your service and for being here with us. Um, we have a, about 80 plus appointments tomorrow on the Hill and you made reference to your staff members. Would you just speak to um, the role that staff members play for the elected officials and the importance of those meetings? First of all, if you've never been to the Hill, you're going to be shocked to realize that it's run by people in their 20s. <laughs> um, and it really is. It is. It's run by young people. But they, you know, I, I was talking to somebody the other day and saying, you know, I, I do not miss being in Congress. Fifteen years was enough for me. I miss the people. I miss a lot about it. But one thing I recognized, how lucky I was that I would have a staff who I trusted implicitly that I could walk to the floor for a vote. Because I might have been busy in committee working on, let's say, telecommunications policies. And I might have to go to the floor to vote on, on a matter un completely unrelated to what I was focused on. Let's say national defense or addiction policy or school lunch programs. So you have to completely trust that staff member to, to know, they know who you are, they know what your district is, they know how you should vote and how you want to vote. And you're going to have to depend on them at times, like instantaneous sometimes, on how you're going to vote. It doesn't always work that way. Members try really hard to be well-educated on all of their issues. It's really the hot topic issues, and this is one. But even so, the staff member is the one who's writing the papers, attending briefings, writing questions for hearings, writing answers for hearings. Don't tell, that's a little secret. Um, <laughs> um, but they really are very involved in the policy. 
The mem many members are going to be so impressed with, they're so engaged, and they're so knowledgeable about this. If any of you are from Indiana, Susan Brooks comes to mind. She's a former U.S. attorney, and she's been very involved in these issues, and she's just bright, and she studies them to no end. Um, and her staff is equally as bright. So she's the, one, the type of politician who will engage and will know, go toe-to-toe -to -toe with you. Um, and then there are some who aren't on a com committee even. Look, yes, they voted for CARA. They voted for the Support Act because that's what they did, because the leadership told them to do. Um, and, but they're focused because on the Armed Services Committee and the Intelligence Committee or committees that have nothing to do with this. But even then, they will have to take a vote. And they're going to want to know, uh, get their, experience, you know, their, their expertise from people like all of you. So when you visit with staff, um, first of all, treat them well. I've seen people berate staff, and I don't understand that. Um, but treat them well and really realize that they are really important to what you're doing and a great resource for you going forward. And uh, again, if you ever need anything from that member, that staff member is probably the entree into, into that direct help from a member. Um, collect the business cards, again, and if you get the chance to meet the schedulers in the office, make sure you get the schedulers card if you can. Because when you want to invite the member of Congress to your facility, perhaps a tour, the scheduler is going to be the person you want to reach out to. And I would suggest that to all of you, as a great way to know your politicians, reach out to them and invite them to take a tour. Um, you know, I took tours of the Betty Ford Center and, and Circle Lodge, I mean, for a different reason, um, but I, I did get to know the Betty Ford, and other, by the way, and other facilities in my district. I think I toured about 10 in my district at their invitation. And I think it's a great thing for you all to do to build that relationship. It's also good probably for your own PR purposes to do that. So that scheduler is a really good one to meet and, and to keep on hand. So I think Mark said that was the last one, unless there's anything else burning or, or nope. Well, Mary, we, we want you to know that it's not just your son who thinks you're really cool. We all do too. Thank you so much for all you do for the field and for being with us today.